Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So there is a story that Jeff Goldblum likes to tell. He just got a part in the movie Death Wish in the 70s. It is a dark and gritty film set in New York, very violent. And at the time, Jeff was new to acting. Death Wish was actually his first movie. So he heads in to start rehearsal. And maybe Jeff Goldblum doesn't seem like the kind of guy that gets nervous, but, you know, his heart's beating a little faster than usual. And he gets a piece of advice that he hasn't forgotten to this day. Michael Winner, the the British director, he was known for being uh, abusive and kind of a, a screamer sort. He screened, as I first did my first camera rehearsal, we're skulking up some stairs, some back stairs to get to this uh, uh, apartment door. He screams at me in front of everybody, Goldblum, start acting now! Start acting now, yeah. And I, you know, uh, so I got burned with shame and sort of anger. But uh, as and I started acting, but as it turned out, it wasn't the worst direction in the world. There's not much more to say, really. Start acting now, and uh, that's about it. (laughs) It's bullseye. My guest this week is actor Jeff Goldblum. No matter what your age, the chances are you grew up with Jeff Goldblum somewhere in your life. He has been gold-blooming on screen for 45 years. Maybe the first time you met Jeff Goldblum was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or maybe it was his run in 90s blockbusters like Independence Day, or Jurassic Park, the black leather jacket, the chest hair, the laugh. I could tell you about his extensive indie career as well, working with Wes Anderson, His cameos in Portlandia, hilarious and endearing. But no matter whether he is starring in a big-budget movie or just a quick cameo on TV, Jeff Goldblum shines through. His charm jumps off the screen with a bit of jocularity that catches you off guard. It's a combination that only he can pull off, and it's no different in his newest film, The Mountain. It's a drama directed by Rick Alverson. Set in 50s America, where Jeff plays Dr. Wallace Fiennes. He's a rabble-rousing doctor touring the nation to tout the wonders of lobotomies. And the performance is classic Jeff Goldblum. He oscillates from espousing the benefits of shoving an ice pick into the brain to tap dancing, all in the blink of an eye. In this clip, he's regaling two women he just met with a story about his grandfather. My grandfather... A brilliant man of great stamina, longevity. He was the first American surgeon to remove a brain tumor. It's absolutely true. He did it with his fingers. I'm not kidding. And this is before the advent of x-rays. And he did it in an operating theater without electric light he's still alive can you imagine my grandfather and you know what that's him right there grandpa grampy grampy <laughs> oh grampy oh it's so sad he's still gotta work okay jeff goldblum welcome to bullseye it's great to have you on the show 
It's great, great to be on Bullseye. Well, how'd you come up with that name, Bulls, Bullseye? It used to be called The Sound of Young America. And really? Pe- people would get angry at me, either because it was so, that was such a presumptuous name. Sound of Young America. Or right. because many of our guests were not young people. Uh, they felt it should be sort of like uh, National Geographic for Kids magazine. Oh, National Geographic for Kids. I don't know that magazine. It's, I know Highlight for Children. Well, National Geographic's for Kids had used to have a section where it was called Kids Did It. And it was oh. like this nine-year-old scaled Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh. That's kind of what they figured the sound of young America would be. Yes. You know, I don't know why you brought that up. You know, I'm currently filming a, uh, a TV series for National Geographic that's going to be out. On, um, it's going to be the first of the Disney streaming offerings. Is it about a nine-year-old scaling Kilimanjaro? No, no, it's not. We're, we, we, uh, is the title A, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, B, Bullseye, uh, C, Bullshot Kremond? What, what is the title? Well, C think? is tempting, Jeff. Um, really? Yeah, well, it's, it's incoherency. <laughs> makes it appealing. <laughs> but I'm going to say A. The world, world according to Jeff Goldblum. That's you're cor- that's you're my correct. guess. That's what the, that's Final what we're answer. calling it. That's right. That's right. That's right. In any case, we've gotten off the track already. I blame you entirely. So the mountain is yes, the sir. new film in which you star. Yeah. It is the story of a man who is in a in very difficult and depressing circumstances doing something that is somewhat brutal and terrifying and disgusting mm-hmm. he is a lobotomist yes. uh, and you play him with great elan and charm at one point oh. tap dancing yeah. in a bowling alley oh. was that the specific quality of this man that they were looking for when they cast you or was that something that you advocated for uh, in the process mm. of making the film no, I didn't advocate for it, although I was, I'm nothing if not conscientious and was very involved in how it was evolving. But that, for instance, the tap dancing kind of occurred at the last 11th hour and 59th minute as we shot. I think it was spontaneous. Uh, we were in that bowling alley. Anyway, it it occurred, but we'd thought, you know, I'd thought, been thinking about the part, and certainly Rick Alverson. There was no they. It's Rick Alverson who who cast me in it, and who envisioned this thing, and and wrote it, and made this movie. And I love him, and I love his movie making, and and uh, and uh, and I'm into this movie. Um, and it, I think, the chips were falling where they where they did uh, because of um, some ideas about the character and, and, and contradiction, for instance. And the character as, a, as somebody who might be saying something that, uh, about the American character and about men and masculine, uh, with masculine roles about their burdening their shoulders in the uh, mid-50s. Uh, where we find ourselves. And this lobotomist is a, um, taken from a real character, Walter Freeman. I'm, my name is Wallace, F- Wally Fines in the uh, movie. But he was a, uh, he was a person of uh, many facets. Uh, I think probably a troubled uh, gizzard, you know, and, uh, 
and bloodstream from the work that he had done and the results that he was getting uh, here and there, but he was a showman too and a person of kind of, you know, uh, bushy-tailed charm, I think, uh, here and there. He used to put on shows. He was a pitch. He was a kind of a snake oil sales person trying to really make right his uh, legacy and what he was offering and had come up with, which was his own brand of lobotomy. He invented the transorbital lobotomy, whereby he jettisoned his surgeon, who was doing all the cutting up originally, and uh, he said, "I, you know, I'm just going to go into my uh, kitchen. This, this, these, these ice picks that I found found in the drawer. I'll bet I could go in through the eye socket and do this uh, windshield wiping and uh, kind of separate this lobe from that and kind of fix people up in that way. Deal with their frailty and their homosexuality and their uh, and women who are uh, thought to be misbehaving and uh, and." Uh, going outside the traditional uh, domestic roles at that time, possibly, and some kids who are overactive, that kind of thing. And there were also people, of course, who were beset with uh, violent uh, ailments. But he was, uh, you know, had many facets, like I say. I think he thought he was doing uh, good, but he also, like I allude to in that scene, and like the real character, had a grandfather who was a big deal, uh, a surgeon and famous. And I think he wanted to plant his flag and make his mark and make a name for himself as uh, goes the uh, American ailment here and there. And uh, he reminds me of Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman uh, uh, around the edges uh, who goes, you know, I was right. I was right. And, you know, all of that business. But he's really on some misguided, dark, dreamy fairy tale of an endeavor. And that's, that's the larger theme and issue, I believe, that Rick lays out in our movie the mountain yeah i mean he is it would be one thing if he was simply performing this somewhat brutal surgical procedure on people yeah but there have been a lot of strange and misguided medical procedures pursued over the you know millennia yes one of the things that makes this story so distressing uh, is that this was a procedure that was like past its sell-by date that was like uh, being pursued just after it had started to be figured out that maybe there were things you could do for mental health that were real medical treatments. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that it exists yeah. in this liminal space between like medieval and modern medicine. Yes. Did you think about to what extent he believes himself to be doing the right thing? Yes, I did. Like I talked about a little bit just before. Yeah, I think he was still uh, conflicted and uh, inflamed and uh, had some kind of storm going on inside whereby, yeah, he was still asking himself, what have I done? Have I done any good? Even though it's fallen, it used to, I used to be on the cover of Life magazine, and they thought I was good. And the guy who I sort of borrowed this from in Europe won the Nobel Prize several years ago. Uh, could it be that this is that I'm doing harm? Uh, you know, it's, it's Arthur Miller, like I say, dealt with that in All My Sons and and in uh, Death of a Salesman. You know, am I doing right, Ben? What should I, what should I be telling my boys? I wanna. 
I want to teach them the right thing. Am I doing the right thing? I'm beset with doubt. Uh, I think there's all of that probably, but, uh, but like the American adventure in Vietnam, uh, there were people involved in that, I'll bet, because uh, I've recently seen the whole of that, that Ken Burns documentary. Um, there were people involved in that who well past, like you say, the shelf life of uh, reasonable, reasonableness and, and defendability uh, knew that they were uh, lying and, uh, and doing great harm, but had other you know, considerations and, and prideful, masculine uh, ideas about uh, once you go, once you sally forth, you must uh, stay the course, because that's what we must do. <laughs> it's happened before, and uh, and it's uh, it's it'll happen again. It may be happening now. I think uh, you know that's what Rick Alverson, who has strong feelings about. Our, our culture uh, may be up to waking people up and disrupting their confidence in uh, fairy tales. Uh, you know, and I read during this, during the uh, filming of this uh, this movie, I read this book by Kurt Anderson called Fantasyland or How America Went Haywire that really kind of illuminated a lot of uh, what we were trying to talk about. I, I, I realized, and right now as I'm as I'm kind of talking to press people again and kind of re revisiting it and talking about it and thinking about it again, uh, um, much to my satisfaction. It's, I, I, these issues are interesting to me. I'm reading these Yuval Harari books that I'll bet you've read, uh, Sapiens and uh, uh, Homo Deus, now I'm on the third one. Uh, and he talks a lot about things that overlap issues in this movie uh, and, and made up invented stories about nationalism and religion and uh, economics and, uh, and values that uh, are simply invented that have their, uh, their benefits and their definite dangers. You yourself are in your mid-60s and you have two kids relatively yeah. recently. Yeah, four-year-old and a two-year-old, two boys. Have you considered your own life retrospectively at all? That's two big yeah. kind of occasions for doing so. Yeah. Yeah, too big, too big. You mean the two kids or well, two, two other? Well, I mean, What's both, the other occasion? both hitting your mid sixties and oh, yes. and having kids. I mean, they don't off, they don't often happen at the same time. Yeah, but that's two biggies. Right, getting getting up there and having kids. Yeah, uh, yes, it has. It's focused my and uh, intensified and clarified my <laughs> thinking, at least my appetite to think clearly about one thing or another. I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying my best about. Uh, yeah, about large things. About if, if 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 many of my ideas that I've uh, floated upon are uh, half baked, and you know, and what uh, I'm gonna, you know, expose them to, either intentionally or not, you know, uh, what I'll mo be modeling for them, you know, it it's all brings it into focus. Do you have kids? Yeah, I have three. No kidding. How old are they? There's seven about to turn eight, uh -huh. uh, five and two. Oh, so boy, oh boy, we're something in the in the same uh, ballpark. Yeah, just this very day, I'm not home. They're in L.A. I go back there tomorrow. But Charlie, the four-year-old, Charlie Ocean, um, took the training wheels off his bicycle, and he's 
pedaling and balancing for the first time, riding a bike. I kind of miss that I'm not there, but I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm sure he'll, he's still in the in the moment of, of learning. But that's I know it was a very exciting thing for me, and I like that scene in Kramer versus Kramer where Dustin Hoffman is uh, very movingly teaching his little Billy to do that. And these kids are something. Oh, everything comes into question. All, all manner of assumptions and life questions. And uh, yeah, it sort of enlarges your perspective. That's why I'm enjoying these books right now by Yuval Harari. They're very high altitude, large perspective, you know, uh, views on the whole business of being uh, human and, uh, and the fleeting nature of any one of our lives and uh, where we may be going and and what we, he addresses specifically, what we might be, how we might be educating our children that might have any effective impact on their lives because we're at a rare moment of change right now that uh, may see them need to change careers uh, several times in their lives and the whole model for you know training and then working may be different right now. Can we talk a little bit about your childhood? Sure. I'm you, a, any, anything. You grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I sure did, yeah. And I read somewhere that when you were a kid, I was thinking, I'm thinking eight or nine years old, something like that. Yeah. You, you started writing, uh, this is from memory, so I might be getting details wrong here, but you, you started writing, I will be an actor, yeah. uh, or maybe it was God make me an actor. Right, right, right. In in like the mirror or the shower door. Here's what happened. The uh, I was uh, I went to Chatham Music Day Camp between fifth and sixth, and sixth and seventh grades. Took part in this uh, drama program for the first time. My dad had wisely said, "Hey, if you find something you love to do, that may be a vocational uh, guide." post lighthouse it was then that i had this seed of geez i, I want to be an actor and then fast forward to between ninth and 10th and 10th and 11th grades i went to carnegie mellon university and the regular professors gave these classes and i took these courses and became wildly um uh, fired up uh, and obsessed with the idea of being an actor and but it was still a secret I all this time and at that point still I hadn't told anybody including my parents including anybody in my family that that's what I wanted to do but I was I was dead set on it and so I would take a shower every morning before school and we had a glass shower door and it would steam up and I would write please with my finger please God let me be an actor and then before I got out I would wipe it off Yep, I did that. That's what I did. Why did you want to be an actor? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, I, it's mysterious, and there's something, you know, I'm reading Sam Harris and Yuval Harari about the lack of free will. We don't know why we want the things we do. It's all a matter of uh, all sorts of environmental and, and Darwinian uh, deterministic and random things that occur to us, we, and then, then we... You know, it's, it's get an idea. So, so it's none of it is. I, I can't take responsibility really for any of it. Uh, our, you know, my parents had taken us to see children's theater, and outside in the lobby, I remember just kind of dancing like I had red shoes on. You know, I'd, I'd find my body just kind of 
starting to get very excited and fla- flaring up. Uh, so there was there was that and the salvation part. And then, uh, you know, I got this, uh, I was baying at the moon about it. And, uh, and at 17, left uh, Pittsburgh and went to New York to study at the Neighborhood Playhouse with Sanford Meisner. I just got lucky and or something and everything wound up getting me there with good training and... Uh, and then fell into some jobs right away. And anyway, I've been lucky ever since and, and stayed over these four or so decades uncommonly active. Uh, and I feel like I'm on the brink of my better and best work. Uh, how about that? I'm just uh, grateful. When we return in a minute, Jeff and I talk about the wonderful Allison Janney. Who doesn't love Allison Janney? Uh, honestly, if you don't love Allison Janney, you are not welcome here. <laughs> Everyone should love Alice and Janney. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build an online presence and run your business. Create your company's website using customizable layouts along with features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. And Squarespace offers built-in search engine optimization. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of NPR's Hidden Brain. Think deeply. Here to tell you about our summer series, U2.0. Ideas and advice about how you can respond to life's chaos. Let's do it. Just check to my inbox. Just check. Just check. Just check to my phone real quick. With wisdom. Listen to Hidden Brain every week. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create... Okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster. But it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jeff Goldblum. You might know him from movies like Jurassic Park, which at one time was the uh, most successful movie ever. Or you might know him from The Fly or or any of the many, many other things he's done. He stars as Dr. Walter Fiennes in The Mountain. The Mountain is out now in selected theaters. How did you end up at the Neighborhood Playhouse? That's like, it's a pretty specific landing place for a 17-year-old from suburban Pittsburgh. It's interesting that you should ask. Well, Carnegie Mellon University, not only did I fall in love with acting, but I fell in love with that campus and those teachers. And uh, when applying to colleges, because my dad was a doctor and thought, well, it's, you know, it's acting. He had actually thought of being an actor himself. And so they titillated him, this idea. But he thought, you know, so be part of a program and go to college. And da, 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 da. I applied only to that school. I did a kind of horrible or inadequate audition. I'm sure they were correct and turned me down. So I was scrambling around that summer for places. And one of the teachers at Carnegie Mellon University was Mordecai Lawner, who had studied with Sandy Meisner and taught at the Neighborhood Playhouse and then came back to Pittsburgh and was teaching there. So I was exposed to something of that method and his approach. Uh, And when I got turned down, I had a little meeting with him and said, geez, why 
what did I do? Wasn't I any good? And what am I going to do now? And da, da, da. he and he helped, and we sort of. I went to New New York. My mom helped me take a trip to New York, and I think I had put on an audition for NYU. And in and amongst this uh, little, um, uh, you know, uh, search uh, search party, I uh, I met Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse. They accepted me, even though I'd lied about my age. You had to be eighteen to, when you start. I was going to. St- turn 18 later in that fall. But anyway, they accepted me, and uh, that's what happened. I got in, and my mom helped me set up an apartment nearby on the Upper East Side, uh, and I walked to the school. And then a couple months into it, they found out that I was a different age and tried to throw me out, and I had to you know, pursue Sandy Meisner and say, no, 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 it's, uh, I'm doing well, aren't I? And please let me stay, and then he let me stay, and et cetera, et cetera. That was it. I interviewed Alice and Janney once, who also yeah. studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse. She's lovely. I love Alice and Janney. Yeah. yeah, everybody loves Alice and Janney. She's I great. Know. Yeah, she's great. Uh, I think we can all agree. Mm, she's tall, and, quite tall. She's come to our jazz gig, and uh, uh, I, I, I love her. She was good in that skating picture, wasn't she? She's good in everything. Alice and Janney. Mm-hmm. She's good in Kaiser Permanente commercials. Mm. <laughs> um <laughs> I talked to her a little bit about the distinctive methods of Sanford Meisner. Ah. One of the things that in, in what is often called the Meisner technique is a kind of core practice mm. is this thing called the repeating game. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you describe what that is to me and what it is like to do? Uh, yes, uh, let me try. I'd like to uh, because it's there's some misunderstanding around it. I wanted to understand that... Um, technique and craft from the inside out. I, I, I taught it for a couple of decades whenever I wasn't working, and I, I feel I have some understanding about it. Uh, it's an improvisation where you pretend, uh, try to pretend good, um, or as he says, living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And part of this pretending good is you, uh, you start learning a, a, a new kind of vocabulary for interaction, moment-to-moment, so-called, uh, whereby you're so-called working off of the other person. And you're taking your attention off yourself in a very healthy way. That's a very technologically very good crafty thing to do. It has many good aspects. And you put it on the other person who's infinitely interesting and uh, mysterious. And you start to be present and do two things. Be open to them enough to pay attention so that you can repeat what they say if they utter something. Just like they say in marriage counseling or business uh, training, they say, hey, don't be thinking about what you're going to say. Listen well enough, attentively enough, so that you can repeat back exactly what the other person said, giving them psychological air so that they feel, hey, I've been listened to. And then, so you're open enough to say that, then you, you get more acute and you pay even more attention. You say, you know, here's exactly what you said, and here's the way you said it. There's some other things that were not exactly in in the words, but from your body language and from the way your inflection, you also meant this and this and this, and that's the receiving end of what you're doing. Uh, that's a very healthy thing to do, to be able to do when you act. It's going to be useful in any scenic acting. And then before we go on, you may say, let me, and here's the output part of what you do when you act too, let me tell you how I feel 
in word or deed about what you just said and how you may have said it or what you just did. And then I'm, I'm finding my voice and, and communicating in word or deed, like I say, it's something in response. And it goes like that moment to moment to moment to moment. It's a very good way to, to begin interaction. But all good actors are doing it. It's not esoteric, as some people think uh, once they study there. It is. All good actors are doing it. They're listening and they're answering. And finally, you're doing it in the game of acting, which is I'm going to pretend that this thing that you've said is not just an acting utterance that you've made, but it's in real life. That's a, that's a leap of imagination that the actor has to do. Or if it's a line that's in a script, I'm going to pretend that you didn't read it and that you made it up and that I've never heard it before. So you're also practicing that. And the thing that I have to say to you is spontaneous and comes out of and is triggered in me from what you just said. That's a very healthy thing to do. It happens in real life. And so you can craft uh, the, the depiction of it in uh, by use of that and then that's like skating is to hockey then you learn to play the whole hockey game and uh, do a whole do a whole a uh, situation but it's mistaught and it's misunderstood and it's overemphasized here and there and it's prolonged in its uh, training anyway it's a very good thing to do if you do it correctly and it can lead to the ability to really improvise uh, as I know for myself and make use of I've improvised in Thor Ragnarok and other movies and and Portlandia I enjoy all pure improvisation where there's no you know uh, part of the text uh, uh, in it and I like doing the other thing but then you have to make sure these students who are learning this Meisner method don't get just religiously devoted to that and don't do what the second year is, which is really Stella Adler work, which is making the show good. If you need to do the show in any one way or another, maybe there's improvisation, maybe there's not. Maybe you're doing David Mamet or, or Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers, and you got to say every line just the way it is and make that seem as if you're improvising. Anyway, you got to learn the whole puzzle. That's a little bit of the, the training course that I know about. I had a teacher who had studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse, mm-hmm. and while there were a lot of things in theater training that I did not connect with. That was one thing that I did. Mm. And uh, I found that as a person who, you're going to be stunned to hear this given Mm. that I'm a public radio host, Mm. but has a tendency towards, you know, distance and Mm -hmm. over-intellectualization. I found that there was no acting tech, there was no acting technique or uh, practice or, or drill that I did that was more helpful to me yeah. in uh, being present enough to, to behave like a, a human being behaves yeah. Uh, yeah. while performing. It can be, if it's taught right and pr- practiced right, it can be very, very uh, healthy and useful. Yeah, I think so too, especially for the cerebral types and people not necessarily connected with their tummy and their impulses or somebody in the incoming who's not paying attention to, uh, you, you know, what's around them. Uh, he said, Meisner said, use what exists. It means outside of yourself, make use of exactly the moment as it's presenting itself to you, and then everything that's inside. Include, it's all available for, for uh, inclusion. And that's, there's some good stuff in that. One of, if not the first screen credit on your long list of screen credits mm. is the film Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Was that the actual first? 
movie yeah. part that you booked? Yeah, it was the first uh, part that I ever did and the first audition I ever had. I had a, an agent who saw me in this play, El Grande to Coca-Cola, and said, hey, yeah, well, we'll send you up for things. Sent me up for that. I auditioned with a bunch of other tough-looking guys for these bad guy parts, and uh, and they gave me the part. Yeah. When you say a bunch of other tough-looking guys, yeah. you mean a bunch of other guys who were, in contrast to you, tough-looking? Well, I... Well, uh, I tried to look tough and, and you know. You're wearing, I watched the clip of, of your performance, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's really something else. Yeah. Um, but you're you're literally wearing a, a, I guess I would call it a jughead hat. Yeah, it's a jughead hat, yes. Is that, I don't know if that's the exact type of, that's a name of that type of hat, but the kind of hat that jughead wears exactly. where it's an old that's hat. Exactly, sort of jerry-rigged where, crown out of felt, yeah, where, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Where the, yeah, where the brim has been cut to that's make right. it into a. That's right. I picked that out, you know. Um, and it is wild. I mean, you let, you put it all out. It's like I would play a clip from it. There's almost no talking. You're on screen if, uh, for a pretty long time. Yeah, for, it's a brutal scene. Yeah, with Hope Lang. It's you and a couple of other toughs like gallivanting around That's a grocery right. store. Yeah, Like uh, being upsetting to people. Yeah, yeah. We upset people, and then we follow, you know, Charles Brunson's wife and daughter home to their Upper East Side apartment, and we uh, kill them. It's a brutal scene. And, uh, yeah, I was all, uh, yeah, I did something in the movie that I did sort of in the audition, which is be very, you know, jazzed up as if uh, I'm on crystal meth or something. I don't know if I thought about that at the time, but I'm, you know, all jazzed up. Uh, whether I'm tough or not, I, I don't know, but I'm street, street uh, disturbed, you know. And uh, freakish. Although the name of my character was Freak Number One. In fact, we were all kind of freaked, three freaks. And uh, yeah, that was the part. I was uh, thrilled to get a part and do be doing something. How about that? It's really kind of an extraordinary performance. You must have been, at least in part, scared just to be on a set of yeah. a major film with famous yeah. people. I was scared and excited. I mean, Sandy Meiser said it takes 20 years before you can even call yourself an actor. The good part of that was that I, you know, set my calendar to, uh, you know, to the long term, which has sort of paid off. I think I took that to heart, and I'm, I'm, I still feel like a humble student and, and that I'm on the brink of my uh, best and better work. But part of it also got in amongst me uh, to say, geez, you, you are <laughs> inadequate for the task. Uh, you can, you're not really an actor. Don't call yourself an actor yet. And because uh, you probably don't know what you're doing. And I, I think that legitimately described me. I, I didn't. And as I look back on it, I could have done a lot better. I don't know what I did that may have been striking. But but I was excited. I, you know, like I say, I had this uh, fire in my belly from the start. And so being on a set was like, yeah, let, let's go or something like that. But Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing. This is scary. That's right. And then Michael Winner, the, the British director, he was known for being uh, abusive and kind of a, a screamer sort. He screened as I first did my first camera rehearsal. We're skulking up some stairs, some back stairs to get to this uh, uh, apartment door. He screams at me in front of everybody, Goldblum, start acting now! Start acting now, yeah. And I, you know, uh, I, so I, I burned with shame and sort of anger. But uh, as and I started acting, but as it turned out, it wasn't the worst direction in the world. There's not much more to say, really. Start acting now, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> Just, I mean, there's faster and slower also. There's that, you know, but act. Start pretending and keep pretending. <laughs> Was there a point in those early years of your career where... 
you felt like you belonged and you were doing it right? Oh, it started to. Well, you know, I, you know, that movie did well. It was a kind of vigilante kind of uh, uh, movie that hit hit a chord, and and you know, I, I, I looked at it, and I guess, hey, we, I guess we did did okay there, and that kind of worked. I'd already been on Broadway, doing some stuff, you know, but better. And then I got a big part in this. Uh, in this uh, ensemble movie with Joan Micklin Silver called Between the Lines. And I was still way, you know, needed to find my sea legs in many ways. Uh, and, you know, things that grew. And then it, it, we're now about at 78, and Phil Kaufman, a wonderful director who I was very lucky to work with, did a wonderful movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it was during that movie that I started to trust myself a little bit. I, I did a line one day to my wife, Nancy Belichick, played by uh, Veronica Cartwright. She said, why have we always thought they were going to come in metal ships? And I've said, I, honey, I've I've uh, ne- never thought that they were going to come in metal ships, you know, something like that. And Phil, the way he uh, looked at me and appreciated and, and sort of uh, laughed a little bit, and uh, the way he saw me uh, made me see myself in a way. Hey, I think I got something in me that, without overwork or desperation or becoming too, you know, outside myself, I think I can do something that's a little bit. Uh, just of me, just just that I can contribute uniquely, maybe, and do this thing that Sandy Meisner was talking about. You know, don't copy anybody and be yourself. And uh, anyway, uh, it went on from there, and it's slowly and surely, you know, and still keeps creeping into my zone of enjoyment and <laughs> and uh, education. Well, let's hear a scene from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So basically, uh, if you haven't seen the film, alien pod people have arrived. They're trying to wipe out humanity. Mm-hmm. And my um, guess Jeff Goldblum is Jack Belichick, who is a writer yeah. and a bar owner. Yeah. And in this scene, he's at the book party of a of uh, Dr. Gibner, yes. uh, who he believes to be a hack. It's Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, and, and he's and and he feels like uh, he can just let everybody know what he thinks. Right. Uh, thank God you're finally here. These people are driving me nuts. Are we gonna have dinner later? No, no, I can't. Do you know where there's a telephone? There's a telephone right around the corner. Elizabeth Driscoll, Jack. This is this is the Elizabeth. The book is awful. Kibner's book is awful. His ideas are garbage. Kibner's ideas are pure garbage. How can you say that about a man like Kibner? I'm not saying it about a man like Kibner. I'm saying it about Kibner. He dashes one of these things off every six months. Takes me six months to write one line sometimes. Why? Because I pick each word individually, that's why. What's so hard about that? I wasn't even talking to you, was I? <laughs> we, I remember being on the set. I'm talking to uh, to uh, Donald Sutherland, you know, who is an imposing figure. But Phil Kaufman was guiding us, and I remember us improvising a little bit. That wasn't exactly in there. I wasn't even talking to us. Uh, I'm not talking about a man like Kivner. I'm talking about Kivner. I think I put some of that stuff in there, and that part, and the way I'm sort of huff, huffily, you know, unrecognized, unacknowledged, you know, that, that was that was. I knew something about that. I saw Donald Sutherland in a movie called Joanna. Look that up. You won't know that movie, but it was a British little art offering. I think it was maybe his first thing. And so I did this movie with him. And then I saw MASH, of course, and then did the Altman, felt part of the Altman family a little little bit, having done those couple of movies. And then so by the time I did this in 78... I said, yes, Donald, look at us. Uh, here we are. And I, I don't think I ever told you this story. 
Donald about seeing you in Joanna and et cetera, et cetera, you know. So, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, I've been pretty, pretty lucky. Jeez. I think that at this point in your career, I'm going to stipulate that you have reached iconic status. Um, and, you know, being an icon is partly about, you know, your, your, your extraordinary gifts, you know, your, 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 the art that you've created. It's also in a way that could be difficult about like, you know, icons are simplified. And I wonder, like, I wonder what that's like for you as somebody who is an actual human being. Well, you know, I don't take too seriously. It's all coming and going. Everything is fleeting. And, uh, you know, so this too shall pass. We, we needn't get too upset about one thing or another. But this is all a lucky occurrence. And uh, um, I'm in a cycle of current uh, attention of, a, you know, from one place or another. But, and I know what you mean, and I've always, you know, ostensibly, my posture has been and still is that I want to do a variety of uh, parts and uh, and uh, be able to break out and be creative and, and, and do all sorts of things. But it's also true, I don't feel any, the, the, the headline here, the upshot is that I don't feel any particular tension or difficulty or burden by any of what I think you're referring to. And a part of that may be because the stuff that people seem to enjoy or that's become, you know, repeated or whatever uh, you, you call it has come out of my nothing that's been calculated or has been designed to make an impression or to create some kind of cartoon figure or, you know, sketch of myself. But it's it's come out of something that I might call authentic if I'm not breaking my um, arm in order to pat myself on the back too uh, uh, outrageously, because uh, um, I'm not really. The, I'm just saying that I'm enjoying myself and that I do stuff like this that that I think is something that people seem to enjoy, and I do other stuff in this vein where I sort of, you know, prattle on with an incompoopery and uh, just sort of uh, uh, un unload, upload the... <laughs> The um, extent of my uh, uh, pleasure of, uh, you know, uh, uh, being, uh, you know, doing whatever I do, whether it's playing music, because there's a lot of aspects to that playing music, which I like, and playing with people. I do have a genuine, I guess it comes from that original Meisner's technology, too. Some of my animation comes from... It's just letting myself alone, really. At least that's what I've tried to do. But I think I've, you know, I've done it to one extent or another, and and put my and got interested in other people uh, sometimes or something outside myself, and then there I go, and I gives rise to whatever I seem to be doing, in an uncalculated way. So whatever comes out of it is kind of. It's okay with me. It doesn't seem false or not part of me or not having come out of me. And what do I care anyway, even if it's <laughs> even if it puts me in a corner? I say nobody puts baby in a corner. And uh, what movie is that from? That's uh, from Dirty Dancing. Exactly, exactly. Dirty Dancing. I only recently learned that, that, that I had never seen Dirty Dancing oh. until about two years ago. I had no idea that was a reference to a character whose name is Baby. Yeah, jo yeah, Joel that Gray's daughter. Me by surprise. Yeah, Jennifer Gray. Yeah, that's right. You know who Joel Gray's father was? 
Wait, who was Joel Gray's father? Joel Gray's father and Jennifer Gray's grandfather was Mickey Katz. You may get a kick out of looking up, or some of your listeners may get a kick out of looking up Mickey Katz. We had a record when we were a, a kids. Katz puts on the dog, uh, and it was all his um, novelty songs that he would sing that are delightful for one reason or another. And uh, every time I run into, the like, few times I've run into Joel Gray, we sing them to each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mickey Katz. Well, we're we're far off the course, and uh, I've already taken up too much of your time. So, not at all. Jeff Goldblum, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so so nice to get to talk to you. I can't thank you enough. It's so nice to talk to you. I call this show the uh, uh, Air Entertainment for the Young. What did we used to call it? Uh, the Sound of Young America. Sound of Young America. Bullseye. Bullseye. Yeah. Bullseye. We hit the bullseye. Or we went far afield. I don't know. Anyway, thank you. Thanks again to Jeff Goldblum. What a ride. When he isn't starring in all of your favorite films, Jeff carves out some time to moonlight as a jazz pianist. Here's the song Caravan off his most recent album, the Capitol Studio Sessions with the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. For those of you in the great city of Los Angeles, he plays regularly at the Rockwell when he's in town. His new film is The Mountain. It's in theaters now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California, where this week our office witnessed the return of La Cucaracha. Uh, basically, for months, a man would play La Cucaracha from his car while driving by the lake, so loud that we could hear it in our ninth-floor concrete fortress. And for a while he was gone, and we were worried about him. But this morning, the familiar notes returned. Like the lowrider horns in the old neighborhood. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away from the office with a new baby that I got to meet this week. Ooh, I wanted to eat him up. Ragu Manavalan has been filling in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our thanks, as always, to Dan. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. It's from their album Thunder Lightning Strike, which is getting a beautiful, I just saw this, getting a beautiful LP re-release on multicolored vinyl that looks really sweet. So you should cop that. Our thanks to the Go Team and Memphis Industries, their label. And before you go, there are so many great interviews in our archive. You can find them at MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. All of this week's interviews and segments are on our YouTube channel. Uh, We are on Twitter at Bullseye. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.